Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families. And on this episode of Enterprising Families, I have with me John Quinn, and we are going to be discussing engaging multiple generational giving through family foundations. I am very excited to have this conversation with John because he has experience in working with foundations, especially working with next gens, current gens, and the intersection of generations. So welcome, John. Thank you so much. I'm I'm delighted to be here and I appreciate you asking me to join this conversation. And so before we jump into our topic for the day, I will just like to ask you to introduce yourself so my audience understands who you are, what you do and um, how we got to this conversation. Great. Uh, I'm a deputy director at an organization called Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. We're a U.S.-based uh, philanthropy advising organization that was started by the Rockefeller family about 20 years ago. We work with individuals, families, and corporations on the strategy and implementation of their charitable giving priorities in three different ways. In one way, we act as sort of a traditional consultant where we help donors research an issue, develop a strategic plan, develop a program area, uh, do a sort of family retreat or an isolated uh, discrete project. In the second way, we act as the outsourced staff for a foundation where we serve as the combination program director and grants manager. And in the third line of business that we have, we act as the host for a number of donor collaboratives and pooled funds where foundations come together to work under a shared strategy on a common issue such as plastic pollution or shark conservation or marine protected areas. Those are some examples of the work that we do. I sit primarily on the consulting and management side of things, and I've been with the organization for about eight years. We work with anywhere between 150 and 200 donors in any given year on projects that are all that take place all over the world. Uh, we work with donors who are headquartered in the United States, uh, in Europe, in East Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America. Uh, and we have offices in New York, Chicago, where I'm based, San Francisco, uh, a couple of different places in Europe, and in Lagos. Wow. Now, let me start from the point you ended up. So I get a, a I create a picture for my listeners. So does the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors take a particular orientation when working with multi-generational families on their giving and or where did it get started? Yeah, so so we trace our legacy to the Rockefellers generations long legacy of giving, which is both family oriented and institutionalized as you know, as your as your listeners may know, or probably know, uh, there are a number of different probably dozens at this point rock 
Rockefeller-derived institutions that engage in philanthropy, both in the United States and around the world. Some have the Rockefeller name, some don't. But the common thing that unites all of those and that guides our approach to the way that we work with families in particular is that everything emanates from a place of values. People give back because they care deeply about a set of values that animate their professional lives and their personal lives, and they want to connect that philanthropy to those deeply held core values, we're increasingly seeing a greater understanding among donors of using philanthropy as a tool for personal expression. Sometimes family togetherness, though we can talk about how that can get a little complicated, especially in the multi-general context, multi, excuse me, multi-generational context. Um, but for us, it starts from a place of values. And we try, in our, in our process, what we try to do is to surface those values and to try to translate those values into a set of giving priorities and then to fund work with donors to fund organizations that line up with those values and those giving priorities. Right. So when you're looking at foundations and um, families that are giving, what do you think motivates family business leaders to give back? And is it the family business leaders that start this conversation? Or are you seeing more and more next gens starting this conversation as well? I think it's a little bit. So so I'll say, I'll, let me answer the first part first, which is our, uh, you know, what's motivating the family business leaders. I think often there's a recognition that those businesses and those families benefited from an environment that made it possible for them to accumulate wealth and they want to give back to those communities. I see that a lot with the individuals and families that we work with that are business owners. They want to give in their home. They either want to give in their home, however broadly they define that. They could define it as a geographic community, as a diasporic community, uh, as a religious community, or even from an issue base, right? I grew up in an environment that was threatened by industrialization. So I want to get back to that environment and to similar environments. We see that pretty common. We see that as a pretty common aspect of, of family business philanthropy in particular. Um, so that tends to be sort of where that motivation comes from. Uh, in the old days, as it were, uh, family businesses would often wait until they had accumulated sufficient resources to start giving back. I think that's changing a lot. I think people are starting to give away as they accumulate wealth, uh, which is interesting because I think there's a, a greater responsiveness maybe to the conditions of today uh, than in the old model, which was let's accumulate a bunch of resources and then start to give those away with a particular eye towards legacy. So I think now we're in this place where we're, people are starting to think about giving, you know, giving while living is sort of the term in the sector. Uh, but that orientation, I think, opens people up to giving in different ways than maybe they might have in the past. Whereas, you know, in the past, they were looking at legacies, names on buildings, endowments for major institutions. Maybe today it's, you know, there's an immediate need to clean up a beach near where I live and to set up greater environmental protections for that area. Uh, that's a different kind of giving uh, than the legacy giving, which is something we could also come back to if you want to talk about later, because I think that also influences the multi-generational context. And then the other thing that's changing, I think, is a greater interest in involving younger generations earlier on. Um, one of the things that I always say to families when, we, when, when the current generation of leadership asks me, 
how do I get my children involved or when should I get my children involved? I always say as soon as possible, because if you want philanthropy to be part of your legacy as a business leader in much the same way as your business is part of your legacy, those conversations need to happen almost on a parallel track and they should start as early as possible so that your children or your grandchildren are as aware of all parts of the legacy and not just uh, the one, the business part if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And that gets me thinking, um, especially about the conversation we had just before we started recording um, about next gens and how currently um, it might be a, a unique time in history where we have more than two or three generations overlapping, but more like four or five generations overlapping and each one having being, I, I remember reading on LinkedIn a descriptor for each generation from the baby boomers right down to the Gen Zs. And I was, and and I and I was, I think I placed in millennial. I think you'd probably be in the same category. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, yep. wow, this is these are five generations that are overlapping each other and coexisting. What are the common trends and themes um, that have emerged? in the work that you're doing with next-gen donors and which different groups of next-gen donors are actually active in looking at the foundation work that's been happening as well as looking at ongoing giving as a structure and as a legacy building tool for, for their families. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, we think about that a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that sort of haunting Hunting might be a strong word, but one of the one of the things that's affecting uh, the the philanthropic sector is this massive wealth transfer that's happening from boomers to millennials and to Gen Zers. Uh, Gen X is part of that too, depending obviously on the ages. But you're exactly right; these multi generational dynamics are playing out across the world and across generations. And every generation sort of thinks that it's the first generation to go through this. I think. Um, because we all like to think that nobody has ever experienced the world in the same way that we have. Um, and I do get a little bit skeptical of some of the headlines that call out how next-gen donors are going to totally revolutionize the world. Because I think back to when I, when I first started researching this topic, I looked at the 1960s in particular because I wanted to hook myself into what the baby boom generation was experiencing when they were reaching adulthood like millennials and Gen Zers are today. And if you look at what in the United States, the Students for a Democratic Society, the, one of the big anti-war student movements wrote, it sounds pretty similar to what youth climate activists are saying to adults today. You know, the systems are broken, they're oriented towards the rich, they're oriented towards profit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So on some level, there was a part of me that thought, well, every generation thinks that it's reinventing the wheel. And you see this play out in philanthropy too. I mean, I'll take the Rockefellers as one example, right? So one of the reasons why there are multiple Rockefeller giving vehicles is because every generation has a different giving vehicle. So John D. Rockefeller Sr. and his son, John D. Jr., started and then led the Rockefeller Foundation. And John D. Jr. created the Rockefeller Brothers Fund for his children. And that organization funds in different ways than the Rockefeller Foundation did, and so on and so on through the generations. 
What I think is different today is that the context is different. So one, the speed of communication makes it possible for greater awareness about issues to be in the faces of donors, maybe than they were before. Uh, I think also we have this, maybe maybe three things that are uh, big flashing red lights, I guess, that next gen donors in particular are paying attention to because they know that as adults, they're going to be living with the consequences of these issues. One is on climate, right? So the UN says we really have until 2030 to make a big turn in emissions, or we'll feel the worst effects of climate change. I think maybe if you are 15, 20 years older than I am, that seems like, oh, that's no big deal. If you're 15, 20 years younger than I am, if you're in your 20s right now, that seems like your entire adult life is going to be focused on dealing with the worst effects of climate change. And you have this short window of time to address it. The second would be challenges around democracy and global justice and reorienting power structures that have just proven themselves 75, 80 years after World War II not to be effective at solving the problems of the world today, because those problems don't respect national boundaries in the way that maybe, you know, the UN system was set up to, right? Climate change doesn't care about borders. Migratory crises don't care about borders. Um, pandemics don't care about borders, right? And so I think there's this re there's this realization that the systems that we, the governance systems that we live with don't really work anymore. And then the third would be that global health crisis that we all just are live through and continue to live through that I think, woke people up to the fact that we can and have to do things a little bit differently. So in my mind, in some respects, it's the context that's the most different that is affecting the way that next-gen donors think about the issues. And I think they're pushing older generations, especially in the foundation context, to give faster and to give it a more to give it a systems level, but at a systems level that's particularly oriented towards justice and equity and doesn't sort of uphold the existing power structures. So a great example of that is the global energy transition. We could transition from fossil fuels to a green economy, you know, with the snap of a finger or as fast as you can get as much material as you need for uh, batteries to store wind and solar. But if we only replicate the economic system that we're living with today, is that actually an equitable transition that's going to make everyone's lives better? Or are we just going to replicate the same unequal economy that we've been living with for the past 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 or however many hundreds of years, depending on how far back you start the clock? I hope that answers the question. It absolutely does. And it brings up... Uh a whole lot of questions in my mind because I, I was walking through the journey as uh, you've, you've put it and I'm, I was having a lot of aha moments where I'm like yes absolutely the issues do remain the same um, the question becomes especially for next gens um, and the younger the next gen the more pertinent the question is that are we seeing foundations and givers really giving towards the the active um change programs active change systems or is there still because i know with the with the current gen the baby boomers yes there was recognition of problem but there was also a very much leaning towards bureaucracy and towards a lot of um let's talk this let's come to a table and have, have a discussion and that discussion we can make whatever promises necessary to get to the next chapter, but not necessarily 
um, then honor these promises. And we've seen the backlash of some of these um, conversations when um, numerous global issues have come to the forefront where it's like, we have discussed this before, this has been a problem from the past and we've sat at tables. And like you said, we have, amazing organizations like the UN that have done a lot of work, but then one of their biggest issues is bureaucracy. They have a lot of goals, the SDGs, we all know about them, but it's often, very often you find them being moved on to another generation or another time frame. Is it, or are you finding the next gens proactive compared to the current gens who are more of reactive and let's 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 watch and let's let's um assist and see how it, it works out and like we are in 2022 yeah that's a great question and i think it points to the tension in what i just talked about which is the 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 necessity for urgent action on crises or issues that have immediate impacts or really short timelines, right? So climate is one that I think about, I've mentioned it several times already because I do a lot of work with climate donors. How do you totally rethink the the global economic system in eight years? Well, you need to move quickly, right? But it is also true that relationships move at the speed of trust and relationships are what power movements. And so you do need to take time, right? Um, I think I see, I think I see, I, I think donor, all generations are interested in systems work. What I think I see with next gen donors is an interest in funding movements rather than institutions. And this is a broad generalization, right? There are, there are older donors that love movement funding, right? I'm on the board of an organization that was started by people 40 years ago who fund, that only funds movement organizations, right? So, so as I say this, I know that there are always going to be exceptions that, that prove the rule. But I And I speak as an institutionalist, too. I love institutions. I think they're really important. The UN is one of my favorite organizations in the world. I think if we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. Um, but I think what philanthropy can do is the central question here. And I think if we want to live with the institutions that we have inherited, but also reshape them in ways that model different ways of being in the world and different ways of acting as institutions, philanthropy's best bet, and I, this is really just my opinion, but I think I see some of this in the work, philanthropy be, philanthropy's best bet is to fund the movements that are pushing these institutions to change their activities and their behavior. That work is entirely relationship driven. It doesn't have necessarily outputs. It might have outcomes, but a lot of the fuel for that work is relationships, which is hard to measure and hard to track. And it's often hard to see the direct influence that philanthropy has had on an issue. I was in a meeting last week and someone said, can you point to things, can you give me examples of where philanthropy has made a difference in the world. And before I say it, before I gave my examples, I said, but the what you need to know is that you can't actually directly attribute any of this to philanthropy, because when you're doing systems work, there are, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of other influences on the system. And those, so 
the outcomes are never going to look like what you thought they were going to look like at the end. But can you say that you contributed towards that change or transformation? Yes, you can. I'm the best example that I can think of is is the Gates Foundation's work on malaria and polio, and I, which will probably be successful over the course of our lifetimes. Did it unfold exactly the way that they thought it would? I'm sure it didn't. Did it involve complicated collaborations with NGOs and governments? Absolutely. Did that change the way that the work happened? Yes. Is it likely that we're going to see cures for or the eradication of both? Yeah, maybe, probably. Uh, and that, I think, is due to a willingness to fund over the long term, which is the other thing that I would that I would say I think donors of all generations, but in particular next-gen donors, are thinking about. Funding movements over the long term is where you can see the most impact. That can be hard, I think, for any donor to be comfortable with because you want to see the results of your work. And if you're funding over the long term, you don't, you might not necessarily be able to. Yeah, um, and I think what you've said um, is is quite powerful because in the scheme of things, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a, a single step, as um, the old adage says. And um, mm -hmm. with any generation, that engagement, even if it's at a different level or different mindset in each um, generation, the fact that the conversation continues or that it is actually um, started is probably one of the most essential um, pieces of the puzzle. What advice would you offer to families that are looking to engage the next generation in their giving? And what advice would you offer to next gen members that are looking to get involved in their family's giving? Yeah. Uh, so first for on the first part of your question, start the conversation and start it early and open the door without the expectation that anybody's going to walk through the door. I've seen time and time again, patriarchs and matriarchs of family foundations, you know, say they want to get their children involved and then hold it out almost like a stick rather than a carrot or say you have to show up to this meeting every quarter or something like that and then never give them an opportunity to speak or engage um and i think it's really important to know that younger generations you know in your 20s and 30s you're busy building a career building a life building a family if that's the direction that you're going to go with your life traveling experiencing the world and often people are in demanding jobs that require 100 percent of their time and so I see older generations sometimes get frustrated with what they perceive as a lack of engagement when it's really just the plate is already full and they can't add more to it. For the younger generations, what I, I would almost say the mirror of the advice that I'd give to older generations, which is show up when you're offered, go through the door when the door is open for you. Know that you won't necessarily know the map right away but over time, you'll start to absorb some of the information and understanding that legacy is really important for you as you start to craft your own path forward, right? It's often as easy as finding one thing that you're really interested in as a hook into the work, right? So I work with a family that funds social services in the city that they live in, and they've been funders there for decades, really decades. And it's a grandfather and his daughter who are involved in um, 
in the work, the patriarch and, and his daughter. And the third generation started coming to the board meetings. And one of them once said to me, you know, I don't, I don't know much about what's going on when they're talking about this stuff because I don't live in the city. I live in a different part of the country. They seem to know everybody. They've been funding these organizations for years. And I said, but it's really important for your mother and your grandfather that you're there. And over about two years of him being there, he finally thought, well, they're really interested in education. I'm a data scientist. Why don't we fund something that lines those two things up? I volunteer for an organization that's focused on training young people and how to code. Can we find something in the city where my grandfather and my mother live? And it was like a light went off in everybody's heads. Oh, we finally got to the place. But it was that slow pace of engagement and a willingness to keep the door open as long as it needed to be open until everybody was sort of ready to come and sit around the table and have a conversation about those sort of shared interests. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining me today. And thank you for giving us lots to think about and insights into the work that you do. How can my audience get hold of you or engage in the work that you do and follow um, your journey as you carry it? Yeah, well, thank you so much for for having me on. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation. It gave me a lot to think about, too. I mean, I always... I'm thinking about different ways to support families and engage with them. So I, your questions were wonderful and, and are things that I'll keep noodling on and puzzling around in my brain. Uh, so you can follow us, uh, follow Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, where uh, our website is rockpa.org. You can find my contact information there. We're on all the socials uh, and this, in the same sort of uh, channels. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Rock Philanth, R-O-C-K-P-H-I-L-A-N-T-H. And you can find a bunch of articles and, and work that we've done uh, through the Twitter channel. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much, John. Thank you. Appreciate it.